0: We're continuing in our series called "Choices: Decisions That Shape the Soul." I've been looking for first through first, working our way through First and Second Samuel, and we're in Second Samuel chapter nine uh, this morning. If uh, if you brought your Bibles, you can go to Second Samuel nine. If you don't have a Bible, the Bible in the pew rack in front of you. If you find page four hundred and ninety nine, you'll find the story that we're going to be looking at uh, today. Uh, James Robertson has uh, become a bit of a household name. If the name doesn't uh, connect for you, uh, maybe his story will will remind you of who he is. Uh, Robertson is a a guy who was walking uh, uh, 21 miles to and from work every day in Detroit, Michigan. Um, he 10 and a half miles to work, 10 and a half miles back home. His, his hourly uh, wage of $10.55 at his factory job. He couldn't afford a car. He couldn't afford public transportation. So he walked. And as he was walking, people who, who drove that route on a regular basis began to notice him and started giving him rides and, and, and heard his story. And word got out. A 19-year-old named Evan Leedy uh, who heard about Robertson's story and about this is walking to and fro, uh, set up a GoFundMe account online uh, which would raise money for, uh, for Robertson to, to buy a car. It turns out that as people around the nation heard his story, people gave generously and that account now is over $300,000. Uh, that's how much is in that account, which is, that's a, that's a really nice car uh, that he, he could purchase Actually, he hasn't had to use that money for the car because a car dealer in Detroit heard about Robertson's story and uh, called him to his dealership one day. And little did uh, did Robertson know, but he had keys to a brand new car to give to Robertson. Here's a picture of him sitting in that car for the very first time. He's... uh, Overwhelmed with emotion at the generosity, this unprompted, this this unprecedented generosity uh, towards him in his situation. And I don't know know what what happens in your own heart, your own soul, when you hear about stories like that, or you see people in in desperate circumstances, difficult circumstances, and you see a need met. I mean, we could tell stories, we could show videos, and we all be fighting for Kleenex because they, they move us. And I wish... That, that we could be a fly on the wall. I wish that somehow we could go back in time and someone could shoot video footage of the story that's contained in 2 Samuel chapter 9. It is a story of a choice that is made by a king named David. It, it's, a, it's a story uh, of, of a promise kept by a king in which the this, this son of a prince is, who's in desperate circumstances who's in difficult circumstances, is going to experience unprecedented generosity. He he didn't expect it. He wasn't expecting it. And it catches him totally off guard. And then, as we hear the story, my hope is that you'll be able to connect the dots. as As this morning, as we come to communion, that we'll be able to connect the dots and see that our king as well expresses unprecedented kindness and love and generosity to us, because this is our story. So what I want to do is I just want to dive in uh, to verse 1 of chapter 9 of 2 Samuel. Read the, actually, I'm just going to read the first verse, give a little context, and work our way through this, uh, this narrative. It says in verse 1, one day David asked, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake. Uh, the, hit the pause button there. David is in reflective mood. This is about 10 years into his reign as king in Jerusalem. The battles have been fought. The enemies have been defeated. He's, he's now in a period of peace. And he's in a reflective mood. He's remembering. Howard Hendricks is given credit for saying this. The quote will be up here on the screen. If you ever find a turtle on top of a fence post, you know it didn't get there by itself. And David is having a, a, a turtle on top of a fence post moment. He's remembering that now he, here he is. He's in this, this incredible position. He's the mightiest man in all the Middle East. And he knows that he has not earned his way there. He, no, he is not, he hasn't performed, and that's what's, you know, people voted him into office. That's not how it happened. God tapped the shoulders of a young shepherd boy. Samuel the prophet anoints him, and he goes, he's the youngest of seven brothers, and he goes from this this shepherding of, of sheep, and now he's sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. It's a reflective moment. It's a turtle on a fence post moment. And he realizes he didn't get here by his own effort. He got here because God put him here. And God used significant people in his life to encourage him, to care for him practically. And as he's in this reflective mode, uh, enjoying the glory days of Israel. I mean, there's two chariots in every driveway. There's a chicken in every pot. These are good days. He's remembering a promise that he made to his best friend, Jonathan. Jonathan has been killed in battle. He was killed in battle about 12 years before this. And he's remembering that Jonathan, his, it's, this is his blood brother. This is his best friend. 1 Samuel chapter 20 captures the moment when David and Jonathan make their covenant, their promise. These are the words of Jonathan to David. May the Lord be with you as he used to be with my father. And may you treat me with the faithful love of the Lord as long as I live. But if I die, treat my family with this faithful love, even when the Lord destroys all your enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a solemn pact with David. And David is in a reflective mood, and he's remembering his promise to Jonathan. And Jonathan is now now gone, and David is sitting on the throne. And so we pick up the story as it continues in verse 2. He summoned a man named Ziba, who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba, the king asked? Yes, sir, I am, Ziba replied. The king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. Ziba replied, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He's crippled in in both feet. Yeah, there is. There is a relative of Saul's. And by the way, whenever there's a change in royalty and royal lines, royal bloodlines, it was common practice. Like if one house is defeated and another, another bloodline steps in and, and sits on the throne, it was the practice of the new king to get rid, to execute all of those who were attached to the old royal line. And so what would typically happen when David asked the question, is there anyone still alive in Saul's household, the old king? The typical response would be, well, uh, well we have wiped them all out. No, there's no competitors. You didn't want a competitor because if, if people got sour on your leadership, they might go to someone from this old royal line and sort of rally around them and a revolution would, would be ignited. So you got rid, it was political wisdom of the day, to get rid of all competition. So as David asks this question, is there anyone alive from Saul's household? is probably thinking, uh, well, he, he wants to make sure that, 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 you know, that everything is cleaned out and uh, there's no co- competitors. So when Ziba answers it, he says, yeah, there's one, Jonathan's son, uh, he, he is alive, but, but, but don't worry, he's crippled in both feet. You see, there, there's this stigma that came with being disabled. In, in that day, it would, you know, there's this stigma on, on those who, who are crippled, and, and it's like God's judgment is on them. Their, their worth is, is very little. There's a sense of, of they're, they're, they're nobodies. And can we just say that for those who are disabled today, those who deal with, with significant uh, some disabilities today, that they too deal with stigmas, That people look upon them in in, in ways. People look at them in ways that are demeaning and devaluing. And that was the case in this day. Uh, This this idea that, David, you don't have to worry about this son because, you know, he's really a nobody. He's crippled in both feet. Yet David is wanting to show kindness. He's made a promise. And, and by the way, again, we could say here that, you know, no one knows about this promise. David could just wipe out all the competition, but he's in a reflective mood. He's, he's got a, he's in the most moments, a turtle on a fence post moment. He knows he hasn't gotten to this place by himself, and he wants to show kindness. Ziba doesn't know this until David tells him, and then David asks the question, where is he? Where is this son of Jonathan, the son of my best friend, the son of my blood brother? Where is he? The king asks in Lo-Debar, Ziba told him, at the home of Makir, son of Amiel. Let me just stop here for a moment because um, knowing some meanings of names might be helpful here. Jonathan's son is named Mephibosheth. So try saying that like ten times. <laughs> His name is Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth, he, he had a destiny. He was to be a king. But if you know the story, that in one traumatic day, his destiny changed. His grandfather, Saul, was on Mount Gilboa. His dad, Jonathan, the prince, was also on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines, in in war, overran Mount Gilboa, and Saul fell on his sword, and Mephibosheth's dad was killed also in battle. The word was out that the battle had been lost on Mount Gilboa, had been overrun, and the thought was then back in the, back in the palace that the Philistines were now going to overrun the capital. And so people were gathering their belongings, and they were evacuating the palace. They were running for the hills for protection. And there was a maid who picked up a five-year-old, uh, a five-year-old kid named Mephibosheth, who picked him up, and running out of the palace, she trips or she drops this five-year-old. A cry is let out, a shriek is let out, and it leads to this young boy being crippled the rest of his life. Maybe it was a spinal cord injury. Maybe it was broken bones. But on that traumatic day, Mephibosheth, his grandfather is killed, his dad is lost in war, and then he becomes disabled. And he was to be a king, but now Mephibosheth is on the run, hiding because he knows that he'll probably lose his life once it's found out that there is a son of Jonathan that's still alive. And his name was not originally Mephibosheth. Interesting little side note. His name, 1 Chronicles chapter 8 tells us his name was originally Merib Baal. Merib means hero. Baal is a Canaanite god. So you put those two names together, he's known originally as the hero of Baal. Years later, when the temple is built and when Yahweh, when the worship of Yahweh uh, really sort of just influences all of Israel, historians will look back and anywhere where a false god's uh, name is used in the name of someone else, they will pull it out and rename the person in history. He used to be hero of bail but now they pull the bail out and they insert bosheth which means disgrace. And literally what Mephibosheth's name means is deliverer of disgrace. He was a hero. But now he is a deliverer of disgrace and he's living in low Debar which when you translate low Debar what that means is no pasture or which is often translated as nowhere. He is a deliverer of disgrace. He is a nobody living in nowhere. He has zero status. And he's hiding out, living off the hospitality of a man named Makir. David wants to find him. Where is he? The king asks. In Lodabar, Ziba told him, at the home of Makir, son of Amiel. So David sent for him and brought him from Makir's home. Can you imagine what it would have been like? when that knock on the door happened? Have you ever been called to the principal's office? Not that I would know anything about that. But here's what it's like. Your heart is pounding out of your chest. You're thinking, I'm in trouble. With my daughter's permission, my daughter Brittany, she she had one of those moments. Uh, We had moved here to Salem in 2005. Uh, She was going to West Salem High School at the time. And the principal, Ed John called her to the principal's office. Now, Brittany, as she's summoned from her classroom, is walking to the principal's office and she's just playing the tapes in her head. What have I done? What did I do? I'm in trouble. What happened? As she's in the holding room outside the principal's office, (laughs) this dread is coming over her. She's nervous. You know, it's cold sweat on the forehead. She's, She's really, really quite afraid. Ed comes out, invites her in the office. She takes her seat, and Ed looks at her and says, Hey, welcome to Salem. Um, We haven't met before. I just wanted to get to know you and see how how you were settling here, if you're making any friends. And this 1,000-pound gorilla releases its clutches from her shoulders and lifts off. A huge burden is lifted off. She thought the call was for something she did wrong, and all it was was a fantastic principal checking in on one of his students, making sure that she was settling well. Mephibosheth is hiding out. Zachary's going to preach. Come on up, Zach. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon this one. Come on up, buddy. Mephibosheth thinks he's been called to the principal's office. He's thinking dread. He's thinking, This is the day I've been found out. This is the day they put a black hood over my head. This is the day they cuffed me. This is the day when the axe falls, my life is over. So he comes with fear and trembling to the king. He's a nobody from nowhere, and his life is hanging in the balance. Verse 5 So David sent for him and brought him from Achir's home. His name was Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. When he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. David said, Greetings, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. Don't be afraid, David said. Think about the power of those words at that moment. Don't be afraid. David said, "I intend to show you kindness, to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will eat here with me at the king's table." Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, "Who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me?" Now, he's got some self-esteem issues. We'll put him in a group and he'll he'll find his identity, right? <laughs> But this is what he's feeling. I'm a nobody from nowhere. You have just, you've just called me into your presence, and I can't believe what I'm hearing. David is having a turtle on top of a fence post moment. He's remembering that he's put in this position, not because he earned it, not because he performed, not because someone voted him into office. It's because God chose him, and he used people in his life to bring him to this point. He used Mephibosheth's father, and he made a promise to Jonathan. And now the tables are going to turn, For Mephibosheth, David is going to say three things to him. The first thing he's going to say is, I accept you. Mephibosheth, you've come into this room thinking life is over. It's just the beginning. I accept you. Do not be afraid. Here's the second thing I want you to know, Mephibosheth. The second thing is, I'm taking care of you. I'm going to restore to you all the property of your grandfather, Saul. Saul. For the last 20 years, you've been living in nowhere, living off the hospitality of someone else. But now I'm going to show unprecedented ge- generosity to you because of a promise I've uh, made to your father. This has nothing to do with you and what you've done to earn this. But this is ha- has everything to do with the covenant I've made with your dad. So all the land is restored to you. And thirdly, what David says to Mephibosheth is this. You have a seat at the table. I'm going to adopt you into my family. You are going to sit at my table. You are going to sit with my sons and my daughters. You're going to sit with Absalom. You're going to sit with Solomon. You're going to sit with Amnon. You're going to sit here. Imagine that scene. You have a seat at the table. Then the king summoned Saul's servant Zeba, verse 9 and said, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and servants are to farm the land for him to produce food for your, for your master's household. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will eat here at my table. Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants, a, a man of many means. Ziba replied, Yes, my lord, the king, I am your servant, and I will do all that you have commanded. And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table like one of the king's own sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. From then on, all the members of Ziba's household were Mephibosheth's servants. And Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet, lived in Jerusalem and ate regularly at the king's table. We get the wrap-up to the story, but in the wrap-up to the story is just a little line that just doesn't seem to fit. He ate regularly at the table. Ziba's household is gonna serve him. And by the way, Mephibosheth has a son. His name is Micah. Oh, why, why the genealogy at this point? The reason is, is because Mephibosheth names his son Micah, and Micah means who is like our God. Because Mephibosheth has gone from being a nobody living in nowhere, he's gone from being a deliverer of disgrace to having the tables turned, to be called into the principal's office, to be brought into the king's throne room, and for the king to say, I accept you, I'm taking care of you. You now have a seat at my table. And his response is, who is like our God? And friends, can we just make the transition here and go from thousands of years in B.C. and come forward now to March 1st, 2015? And can we not say that this room is full of Mephibosheths? That we are a people who have been crippled by sin, broken by sin. And we have a king who says to us the very same things, who in David is foreshadowing the heart of Christ. We have a God who says to us, I accept you. Do you know what the most common command in the New Testament is? It's not, don't screw up. It's not, don't lie, don't, don't cheat, don't steal, don't commit sexual sin, you know, you know, don't, don't, don't get drunk and all, all that stuff. The most common command in the New Testament is, don't be afraid. Because there will be a day when we will all be summoned to the principal's office. But for those who are in Christ, what we will hear is, do not be afraid. We'll be on our faces, believe me. Don't be afraid. I accept you. Not because of what you've done, but because of a covenant I have with my son. I accept you. I am taking care of you. You are are a blessed people when you take your seat at the table. There's blessing upon blessing. I mean, uh, if you get time, would you read Ephesians 1 sometime later today? But well, let me just read a few verses. It just, Paul is ransacking the language to try and describe a way uh, to, to communicate to us how blessed we are in Christ. He says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family. God decided in advance to give us a seat at the table. He adopted us into his family. And, and, uh, and, and by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This, this is what he wanted to do and this gave him great pleasure. Ephesians 1.6. Get this. God wanted to give you a seat at the table. And he didn't do it because, oh man, I've got to do something. These people are a mess. He didn't do it reluctantly. It put a huge smile on his face to give you a seat at the table. He accepts you He provides blessings for you. And, you know, you could take all the earthly blessings. I mean, yeah, take brand new keys to a brand new car. Take winning the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes. Take winning all of Powerball. You stack all that stuff over here and compare to the blessings that are are in Christ, our future inheritance and the the blessings we have now today. All that stuff, the money, the the position, the status, it's like belly button lint compared to what we have in Christ. It doesn't even stack up. It, It just doesn't. And he says to us, I accept you. I'm going to take care of you in ways that's going to blow your mind and bless your socks off. And I give you a seat at the table. Which this, this prompts a few questions for me. One is, if this is who our God is and we are to become like his son, am I becoming like this? Am I becoming gracious and kind and loving? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verse 1, let love be your highest goal. What should motivate us in life is how to be gracious and loving and kind. Imagine a meeting in which your friends are there and some people perhaps in the room that you just encountered a couple times and they're trying to put to words the character, trying to describe who you are. Do the words like love and grace and kindness and compassion rise to the surface? Because this is who who our heavenly dad is. And who we are called to be. Is that who we are becoming? Paul Tripp. uh, Tripp says this. He says, I think my job is to make the grace of the invisible God visible wherever I am. He's stating that very thing. Who am I becoming? Am I becoming like our gracious and generous king? The second question I would ask is simply this. Have you taken your seat at the table? Have you heard the knock? Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door, and lets me in, I will share a meal with them. Friends, have you done that? Because the moment you do, the moment you admit your brokenness, that you are crippled by sin, the moment you stand before the king, what he says to you is, I accept you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to give you a new life. I'm going to adopt you into my family. Have you taken your seat at the table? In a few moments, we're going to celebrate communion. There's going to be stewards up here holding bread and a cup. And, and, and for those of us who have been walking with Christ for quite some time, this is a moment of, of celebrating the invitation to the table. We have a seat at the table in, in the family of God. And we rejoice in who, who God is. And we, we celebrate the grace that we have and the truth of who he is. But maybe today, today is your day of your first communion. That before you would come and take bread that symbolizes the broken body of Christ and dip it in the cup, which this, this juice that symbolizes the, the blood of Christ that was shed on your behalf. Christ Jesus paid your sin debt. So when you admit that you're broken or crippled spiritually, and you, and you say, oh, Christ, I want you to forgive me and I want to follow you in this new life, what, what we do around here is we invite people to come to the cross and to take a white ribbon, write their name on it, and pound it on, onto the cross. And, and that's a way of symbolic way of taking your seat at the table this morning. And then when you've done that, when you've been reconciled to your heavenly dad, then you come take your first communion and take your seat at the table. I've been giving you information. It's been going in your brain. But today you need to feel it. You need to feel it in your heart. I want to show you a video. I've shown this before. It's an older video and you'll, the quality of the video is not that great but I think, I think you'll get the point of what's happening here. It's a story of a guy named Dick Hoyt. Dick and his son Rick Hoyt. Dick and his wife, his wife gave birth to this child and uh, severely disabled. The doctors actually said, just take this boy, put him in an institution because he's a vegetable. And the Hoyts said, no, we're going we're to take him home. We're going to raise him. And they began raising him and in that first year they noticed that there was a There was a person in this broken body. His eyes would follow mom and dad in the house as they moved. And and so the the boy began to grow. And technology advanced as well to the point now there's a computer in which this this young child, by the blinking of eyes, can can cause letters to pop up on a computer screen and communicate with his mom and dad. The family's growing up in Boston, in, in Massachusetts, um, and the computer is set up, and the first words that this, this son is going to speak to his, his mom and dad are not, hi, dad, hi, mom, I love you, mom, I love you, dad. That's not what he says. His first words to his parents are, go Bruins. <laughs> his family is a huge hockey fan, and uh, that's his first words. There's a, there's a person there with personality. As the story unfolds, Dick Hoyt, uh, he, he, he runs a 5K with his son, Rick, um, he's, uh, he, he's, uh, he, he builds this sort of like this, 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 cart with wheels on it and he's going to push his, his son and he, he's overweight, he's out of shape and he runs his 5k and survives it with his son in it uh, in the cart. And uh, his son says to him, dad, when I run with you, my disability just disappears and I come alive. So Dick would run not only 5Ks, but he would run 10Ks, he'd run a 15K, he'd run half marathons, he'd run marathons, and eventually he would participate in triathlons. A triathlon where you swim 2.4 miles, where you bike for 112 miles, and then you run a marathon of 26.2 miles on on the back end. Dick Hoyt will swim the 2.4 miles with a rope attached to his back pulling his son in a boat. He will will ride 112 miles on a bike and, and have his son on the front and then he will push his son for a marathon. I want you to see the heart of your heavenly dad for all of us who are broken. And in our brokenness, we need someone to carry us across the finish line and he's done that through His Son, Jesus Christ. Maybe today is the day for you to take your seat at the table. I invite you to come to the cross over here. To come write your name on a white ribbon pounded on the cross. Just create this moment. This moment uh, uh, of entering into the family. And as you go into this next week, let me just give you this blessing from, uh, from the end of Second Corinthians. And I think you have a better picture to understand it today. May the grace of Jesus Christ... And the love of God the Father and the fellowship and the friendship of the Holy Spirit be with us all.